Welcome to the Behavior Speak podcast. Now, here's your host, Ben Ryman. Welcome to another episode of the Behavior Speak podcast. As always, I'm your host, Ben Ryman. Uh, I first want to just acknowledge that uh, I'm recording today's podcast on uh, the lands of the Talaman, Homoku, Klehus, and Comox First Nations, uh, who were one nation before settlers came and moved everybody into reserves. Um, at the beginning of every episode, I do a, 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 I don't know if I told you this, Christian, but I do a, a bit of a, a land acknowledgement to sort of uh, um, acknowledge, you know, uh, you know where I am and 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 just try to make build some more connections with uh, the local indigenous uh, peoples here. Uh, and, uh, and also I think it just kind of helps, helps me with my learning, but it's also, I think it's also just good to sort of spread the good word. Um, and there was something cool that, uh, oh yes, I, this, this is, I normally don't release the videos and I don't know if this video is going to come out today, but I had a really cool indigenous experience on the weekend. Um, and you'll get to see this, but no one else will. Um, so I don't know if you can make that out, but it's uh, basically it's a a, a, ra- a first indigenous raven. Um, oh, awesome! Yeah, and it was designed by this fellow that I met on the island uh, uh, a, a, a couple months ago. Uh, he was he's in I'm in the local fire department here, and he's and we have two fire departments on the island, and he's in the other department. And we were at a, a intense house fire that turned into a forest fire. Um, on on our on our little rural island here, we've never, first forest fire I've fought in the ten eight years I've been in the department, and uh, he was brand new on the other department. A guy a guy named Matthew, uh, he was he was running the engine pumper system like he'd never done it before. He was doing just a fantastic job, uh, keeping water on the fire, and uh, you know and 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 I I finally had a chance to go over and say hi and meet the guy and and just learn a whole lot about him. And he's an indigenous fella from. Vancouver that's moved here and just trying to make a name for himself. Anyway, he started creating. Uh, he, he's I, I learned he's an artist and a and a, uh, he's an artist. He's also a, like a kung fu kind of master, but but he's also he's he's making uh, indigenous t-shirts and uh, and this is sort of the first one he's made kind of custom for Texade Island uh, and it's a, a raven um, and uh, just really sharp but really neat to sort of. Uh, yeah, not only to, to buy local and you know and buy from indigenous folks, but to actually you know make a connection to the the actual artist and develop a relationship. I thought was is really cool. And so, I haven't I've I've been really trying to sort of build more connections and learn more about sort of uh, the indigenous folks here. But this is sort of the first uh, I think personal connection I've made. And so yeah. that that uh, and and just a, just a really cool guy. And so uh, really looking forward to kind of uh, collaborating with him more and maybe get some other cool designs so yeah so that was so that's fun um yeah so matthew nordi n-o-r-d-i-i and he goes by texada that's the name of the island we live on tau and what i'm going to put in the show notes and i'm saying this is a prop for me is i'm going to put a link to matthew's uh uh company and his t-shirts and so folks are interested they can pick one up so today on the podcast, we have Dr. Kristen Bonema Butel, um, and uh, this is going to be a good one. 
I, they're all good ones. I mean, I, I love doing this 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 gig. I love podcasts, but I'll try not to do a, a too long of a ramble pre- uh, introduction here. But a lot of the a lot of the uh, I think the podcast interviews have been sort of a a bit of a timeline of kind of my growth in this field, both in terms of my learning, but also in terms of kind of uh, understanding and and connecting to the many isms in our world. Uh, you know, uh, when, uh, you know, when George Floyd was murdered, you know, I really connected to a lot of my racial biases um, uh, for towards both uh, Black people and Indigenous people and actually people of a lot of different backgrounds. And that's been a really, I think, a good learning experience for me and a lot of growth there. Through that, I kind of connected to more to kind of the the neurodiversity movement, as it were, um, and ableism, which is a big word, um, uh, particularly in our field. Uh, and, you know, without sort of rehashing it all, I think a lot of folks that listen to this podcast are familiar with you know, a lot of the anti-ABA rhetoric from, uh, you know, autistic advocates. A lot of folks are familiar with, you know, some of the the social media uh, debates that have really gotten quite vitriol between behavior analysts and autistics and, and whatnot. Um, and in the end, what happens, seems to happen is, is the professionals or the behavior analysts finish by saying, well, we've got the data, we've got the research, we've got the articles that uh, show that we're right and show that and, and that prove our point. And there's nothing in, in our research that says what we do is abusive or problematic or needs reform or anything like that. And that really sort of ends the conversation. Uh, and uh, and that's when, you know, and and, and because you know, for a bunch of different reasons, there, there haven't been, hasn't been research to kind of, you know, support some of the arguments that a lot of these folks are making about 20 or so episodes ago i had uh, dr ariel cassio on and they're doing really cool work in um in uh kind of redefining what autism research should look like and what inclusiveness in autism research should look like and they have these kind of guideposts and pillars for researchers to use when recruiting uh they dig deep into sort of the community participatory approach which we might touch on um and just there's a lot and, and, and for the first time i learned that there was a lot of a things that were lacking in autism research uh and, and b that there were things we could do better uh but what what I what the big thing that I noticed was missing was any sort of research sort of looking at, you know, some of these arguments that autistic advocates are making, and B looking at maybe the quality of the research. I'd always wondered about bias in, in the research. I always wondered what it, what what it means when, you know, uh, authors are putting out studies that are you know, funded by their own companies or, you know, we, we constantly hear the anecdotes of, of sort of medical research and how it's big pharma that's funding big pharma research. And we all seem to have a big problem with that um, for good reason, because we're talking about bias. So we're going to dive into what that means soon enough. Um, and up until uh, recently, I didn't think any of that research existed. Uh, I didn't think anyone was doing that kind of work, mostly because I think behavior analysts are probably afraid to do that research. Um, 
and anyone else just you know maybe isn't interested i don't know <laughs> but then i happened upon uh dr bonobo butel and her research your research is exactly what we're talking about and so i'm really excited to kind of dig deep into this and, and i remember you saying to me sort of you know uh, in our pre-chat you know are you sure are you sure you want to do this ben Pretty sure you want to have this conversation because I'm not a you know I'm not an ABA or I'm and in fact my research you know may not make everybody happy, uh, but it's not about making people happy. It's about uh, you know doing good work and doing quality work, and that's the defense that uh, a lot of these folks are using. And so you know this isn't meant to be an attack on them. This is just uh, just just more research and more evidence, and that's what uh, and that and that's the kind of language that. You know these folks speak and so i'm hoping that you know this interview and and this discussion will will speak to those folks and uh and uh and they can start you know reflecting and having some more conversations and then if they've got concerns they've got lots of research here to read and it'll, it'll all be in the show notes so before we got to get into that krista normally i kind of do a bit of an origin story because i most i'm often in view, interviewing behavior analysts and kind of hear about how behavior analysts got in the field but I'd love to just know kind of, you know, what your what your what your role is, what 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 are you into? Like what what's uh, what what is your job? What is your the field you're in? And and kind of how you how you how you came to that field, how you came to start doing research in kind of autism, and and then what led you to kind of start tackling this strain of work. Yeah, okay. Um, so I am an associate professor uh, of special education at Boston College. Um, I have heard a lot of researchers try, try to track their own origin stories, and they're always very convoluted, <laughs> and mine like probably them. is too. Yeah. Um, so when I, my undergrad degree is in cellular and molecular biology. Oh, wow. Um, yeah, totally different field. And I was kind of not really sure what I was going to do. I, I was very naive and didn't really even understand that, like, you can't really get a job with an undergrad degree in biology. Um, so I. Uh, kind of on a whim, moved from my home state of Michigan to California with um, my now husband. Um, and I was like, we, we, we moved there because we didn't really have anything, any firm plans. And he had an aunt who was going to allow us to like live in a, um, like an in-law that she had on her mm. property. So I just randomly got a job um, I, I first got a job as a substitute instructor, and I say that in quotes because I had no training at all in being an instructor, at the Sonoma Developmental Center, which was one of the last um, institutes for disabled people in the country. Um, I think it's still open, but I would just go and kind of fill in when people were absent. <clears throat> and then after that, I got an, a job as a teaching assistant at a residential school for autistic kids um, in San Francisco. And I worked there for about three years. And I kind of thought it was terrible um, that it was not, you know, there, it, it was a residence. So it was, you know, as, as segregated as you can get for kids who were considered um, significantly impacted by being autistic. Um, and, and the education system and, and their families had decided that they, it just wasn't, a public school wasn't appropriate for them. And even, you know, living at home wasn't appropriate. So they lived mm. um, in this residential school. Um, so that's how I got interested in um, 
autism and, and sort of from an educational lens. And then um, after working there for about three years, I then got my um, PhD at UC Berkeley, um, did a postdoc at Vanderbilt, and now I'm at Boston College. So that's like the brief version of my origin story. Oh, that's that's awesome. And so, sorry, that's a, is, so that's a, is that a degree in special education? Is that what your PhD is in? Or yes. So I was. Um, it's sort of under the umbrella of their school, their graduate school of education. And then I was. Uh, they had a very small cohort of special education, uh, special you know people who are specializing in special education in that uh, area. So, so I'm not trying to date you, but I, I'm <laughs> I'm wondering sort of. Just because this your 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 story is some of your story certainly your introduction to autism and whatnot and, and the field is very similar to to mine. When were you when were you working in the residential school in the institution? Like what when are we talking? Because you know, uh, you're, there's yeah. some yeah. Um. So let's let me think. Um. It would have been around two thousand four. Um. So okay. two thousand four, and then around two thousand seven is when I went back to grad school. Gotcha. Just thinking about sort of the timeline. Did you, any idea if that residential school is still running? I don't think it is. I think the people who were running it retired, and then it, yeah. and then it's no longer there. Yeah, I just I just think about sort of. Uh, so that institute, that was basically an institution, is what you're talking about. So, or, well, right. So, so there was the Sonoma Developmental Center, which was an institution, a state hospital, right. and then yeah. there was this residential school, also an institution, um, but it was smaller and it was in a na- regular neighborhood. And did you say that is sorry the institution, the the developmental center was was sorry the last one or the no, it's not the last. I said one of the last. One of the so last. So there, you yeah. know, there aren't uh, many of uh institutions like that they're certainly still there but and there still are some that are open i just uh um uh, we're recording today december 12th and i think it was uh, just on friday that i released a episode by from jeff newman and we talk a lot about adult services and and what's lacking and we talk a lot about institutions um and how they're still open and it's you know it's crazy this day and age that places like this are still going i mean these are I can only imagine what your experience was like in the institution. I mean, that could be a whole probably episode on its own. Um, yeah. Uh, but I also, I got my start in the field working in one of these residential schools as well in BC. Um, and uh, it wasn't technically called a school, but it was a residence and it was segregated. Um, and uh, and yeah, I I definitely had also had some issues with, excuse me, kind of how... Uh, how 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 things were kind of going there yeah and so so, you know i could definitely see you know if that was sort of your early experience in autism it really being a a kind of a foundation for you know kind of some of the stuff you're doing now so what 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 got you into sort of this stream of research around sort of um looking at um um what will we even call this so when we're kind of looking at the quality of research that sort of thing well so yeah I, I like what's the umbrella that it all falls under I, I would say like I, sometimes I call it like research quality and then the, over that I would say like researcher ethics because I have this yes. I, I think research quality and the way that people interpret the quality of their research is sort of an ethical issue I agree yeah um so I guess that specific area I I have always been interested in it but in terms of like actually doing 
research on it. Um, I, in 2000, what's uh, 2017, um, I guess it might, it must've been 2016 when we started. Uh, I, I had colleagues, Michael Sandbank and Tiffany Wynorowski, who were both uh, doctoral students at Vanderbilt when I was a postdoc there. Mm. So, you know, we all went our separate ways and we were kind of like thinking of how could we get a project going together? And we decided to do, we had a couple of different ideas for uh, meta-analyses mm. or other kinds of research syntheses because we had all taken a class together. Mm. Like, well, we all know how to do this. Um, so this is something we could do together. And so we did, uh, Michael Sandbank was the lead on this project. It's called Project AIM. And it was a very large, comprehensive meta-analysis of autism intervention research uh, for autistic children up to age eight. Mm. Um, so part of doing a meta-analysis when you want to b- basically give an overall picture of how effective um, interventions are, you have to do a quality analysis. like. Mm. You know, can we interpret this evidence based on the quality of the research or are there biases that are introduced by virtue of the way the study was designed or the way the results were reported? Um, So that was like our first look at like sort of a comprehensive look at research quality. Um, Then once that was published, uh, we were sort of, you know, um, disseminating that research on social media platforms like Twitter Um, and there is an autistic autism researcher named Michelle Dawson who kind of called us out and said, great job, but you didn't investigate harms. And, Mm. you know, there's a lot of other issues with this that you never looked at. And so we said, you're right. That's absolutely a a great, uh, critique of our, of our project. And so we decided to do two follow-up studies of that research, one on investigations into adverse events. And another, we did a couple of follow-up studies about uh, researcher reports of conflicts of interest. Hmm. Right on. Yeah. Okay, cool. Well, let, let, maybe let's start with the, so that's kind of, and that's, that's, that's the going to be the sort of the primary thing I kind of want to dig into is, is these particular studies. So maybe let's start with the, the project aim. Um, Cause that's, that's a huge study. Like you're not just, uh, you know, if you're not just sort of, looking at, uh, you know, a lot of folks would, would sort of expect, oh, you're probably just looking at the low loss studies and, uh, and you, I think you go sort of beyond ABA here. You're looking at sort of. Yes, definitely. Yep. And, so, and so, and so what did you look at? So our inclusion criteria was any intervention study that was non-pharmacological. So it didn't, mm-hmm. it didn't involve drug therapies. It was just non-drug therapy interventions. Um, and we grouped them. Um, we, we had groups of behavioral approaches, developmental, naturalistic, developmental, behavioral. Um, teach was kind of its own category. Right. I think we had based interventions. This, you know, so anything that was published, in, it all had to be group design research. So okay. where you have groups, control and, and exper- uh, control and treatment groups, which actually means that a like most of the behavioral research was not included because we yeah. didn't look at designs. Yeah, so that that's something we're going to talk about. I think in 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 a, in a different article. Um, so, okay, so what kinds of things did did you find uh, in in this in and, that study? And, in that study, and 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 sort of in general, but then specific kind of to the to to the behavioral research as well. 
Yeah. So in general, we found that pretty much across the board, research quality was low. Like there were a lot of risks of bias um, that were introduced just by virtue of the study design. So inappropriate randomization, uh, they used outcome measures that were not the assessor knew what group the participants were in. Um, Those were two of the big ones. Um, And one notable thing is that there were not enough uh, um, studies that used randomized designs to generate a summary effect for behavioral approaches. So we couldn't tell you how, like, you know, a a meta-analysis, you combine all of the estimates from individual studies into one. So you can Mm. get kind of a, it's a more powerful way of of looking at whether or not intervention works Mm. than a single study. Right. Um, Right. But if we restricted, uh, you know, we we basically um, generated these summary effects for all the studies, not irrespective of research quality. And then we started restricting um, studies by whether or not they adhered to these quality indicators. So the first thing we did is excluded any study where the that didn't use a randomized design. Mm. So for the behavioral studies, there weren't enough randomized designs for us to generate a, a summary effect, and there had to be at least five. Mm. So this right away, I think, was kind of telling. Like I, I think we had, um, I think it's often uh, presented that behavioral research is the most well supported by evidence. Yeah. And yet, even for, you know, a basic quality indicator of whether the designs were randomized, there aren't enough studies for us to even generate a summary effect. So let me see if I understand this. And I, I don't know a lot <laughs> about research and a lot of the lingo. Um, uh, you know, I, I mean, I took I took those courses, you know, eight or nine years ago. And and, you know, I know how to read a research study, but maybe I don't <laughs> after reading your research. But. So you're essentially saying, so when you're doing this meta-analysis, which, you know, combines the the individual effects and gives you one, you know, sort of, you know, combined, comprehensive, stronger number, you're saying that essentially behavioral studies, there weren't enough behavioral studies that even had some of the the basic requirements to even make it into the meta-analysis, like they weren't even that good? Well, that's right. So once we started restricting the studies by these quality indicators, you know, there there wasn't a lot left. Mm. So behavioral research was one and not the only one okay. where it was like, well, if we only um, include randomized designs, we cannot tell you what the summary effect is for this type of intervention mm. because there weren't enough. There were less okay. than five. Okay. So then... Did you find anything about behavioral studies in, in this or? <laughs> yeah. So, well, I, I mean, I, I think that right there, I think, tells you something that the research quality is low and we right. really can't speak to how effective it is because right. the quality is not high enough. Right. And so so maybe let's just go back. So what are these what are these things that the, that the behavioral studies are missing that makes that quality low? Yeah. So so the basic one is randomization. So okay. there were. Many of the studies used quasi-experimental designs, which means yes. that they use existing groups. So if you think of the LOVAS study, uh, that's an example of we didn't take a group of participants, they consented to be in the study, and then we randomly assigned them to treatment and control. Right. Instead, we took two groups that already existed and said, this group is going to be the treatment group, and this group is going to be the control group. Okay. So that's a problem because you don't know if those groups were actually equivalent at the start of the study. Mm. I see. 
So the one that you assigned to be the treatment group could have been already doing better. Maybe those were um, a group of kids who were just more likely to get better over time or to improve on some outcome over time, irrespective of intervention. The term quasi experimental, I've I've seen that term a lot, actually, in in, in research, that this is a quasi experimental design. And even that that phrase, you know, looks still looks good. It's fancy. Yeah, yeah. because it's got the word experimental in it. And so you're thinking. But quasi means it, it, it isn't really. No, it isn't really. And sometimes you can't do good experimental research because it's not appropriate to randomize. So you, you know, which makes sense in some cases, but I don't think that is the case with this type, you know, with your basic behavioral intervention. I think you probably could. It's a much of the research, uh, much of the practice of behavioral approaches are in clinics. So you can randomly assign. There's no practical reason why you can't do good randomization. Mm. And, and 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 I know this this is just hypothetical, but is, is, any idea why there isn't much of this? Oh, that's a great question. I would love to know why. I mean, what, part of our look into conflicts of interest is maybe a, a little insight in, into why. So if you have studies that have a lot of risks of bias, you're more likely to show that the intervention was effective, even if it, in fact, was not. So if you are conducting research and you have a big stake in showing that your intervention is effective, well, why not choose designs that have a lot of bias? Because you're going to show that your intervention worked. And if nobody is um, uh, mentioning that these biases are actually quite problematic, then there's nothing to lose by by putting together a really biased uh, study. Unless you are actually interested in knowing whether or not your intervention worked. Right, right. So, so in the end, what did you find in this study? I mean, so uh, you, you didn't get a lot of information about behavioral studies because they weren't even, you know, up to snuff to be included as, as sort of, you know, uh, with, with with some of those sort of basic basic pieces. What, what did you find overall about everything else? Yeah, so so I think it's important to mention that a lot of those design issues were there for other kinds of studies also, or for other types of interventions also. Okay. It wasn't just behavioral research that was a right. problem. But they were kind of the early dropout. Um, you know, they had, you know, if you were to rank all of the different intervention types in terms of quality, they would kind of be at the bottom of the pack. Mm. Maybe not the very bottom, but they would yeah. be close. Um, so we did find, you know, as we kept um, saying, we kept being more and more restrictive with the kinds of studies or the, uh, the kinds of biases we would exclude studies for having. Um, we ended up, uh, on, I think the only one that sort of survived was developmental interventions. And by okay. the time we restricted all of the biases, um, there were no significant effects. Mm. Um, so it, I think... Um, I mean, I'd have to actually check to make sure I said this correct. Yeah, um, yeah. But, but we did, I mean, I think our conclusion was that across the board, there are quality problems. Mm-hmm. They're not quite the same extent of quality mm-hmm. issues across all of these different intervention types. Um, but, uh, and, and, you know, there are some types of interventions that have better quality than others. But if you consider early intervention research as a whole, it's mm-hmm. kind of plagued with, with quality problems. 
I remember you, I was just looking at your, uh, and this is just me looking at my other screen, that just looking at the at the abstract and your piece around uh, your point around the the naturalistic ones, and and you said that basically, uh, you found some effects for developmental NDB ones, NDBIs, yep, and that if. If you were just limiting it to the the RCT ones, um, but then, so okay, I'll just read this. So when the, when effect size estimation was limited to studies with RCT design, evidence of positive summary effects existed only for developmental and NDBI types. This was also the case when outcomes measured by parent report were excluded. Finally, when effect estimation was limited to RCT designs and outcomes for which there was no risk of detection bias, no intervention types showed any showed significant significant effects on any outcome. Yes. So, so as we kept yeah. getting, so I'm just looking right now. The, yeah. the um, NDBIs were the only ones that had study enough studies um, where we could that didn't have most risk of bias, even then it mm. still had some. And then at that point, none of the effects were significant. So it, it basically was saying that as we restrict our estimates, uh, or we restrict studies according to quality, the more and more restrictive we get, we're showing no effects. So if studies actually adhere to all these quality indicators, it mm. shows that they're not effective. Are you a BCBA supervisor looking to streamline your practice? Or maybe you're working towards your BCBA and need to find the right supervisor. Homehouse offers tools that make supervision so much more enjoyable for both supervisor and supervisee. For supervisors, they offer easy meeting documentation, competency tracking, monthly verification forms, a built-in supervision curriculum, and so much more. For supervisees, Homehouse has a field work tracker with built-in auditing, monthly verification forms, a curriculum, quizzes, and more. If you're looking for a supervisor, they even have a supervision marketplace where you can connect with BCBAs until you find your perfect match, kind of like professional dating. For more information, go to whomhouse.com forward slash speak or search whomhouse on Google. If you're planning on collecting continuing education credits for this episode, you'll need to go to www.cbiconsultants.com forward slash shop. The first secret word is bias. Now, I want to get into sort of the adverse event reporting and, and the conflict of interests, um, as well as uh, a couple of the other studies you did. But one thing I think people are going to ask, and I, you know, right away is, okay, does any field do good research? <laughs> <laughs> And so that, yeah. might, that might be question one. Like it's yeah. terms of, at least in terms of sort of autism intervention, it sounds like the answer is no. Well, <laughs> at least based on the seven early intervention types that you looked at. Right. So I think that's true. Um, but we did there are examples of people who are doing really good work. There just aren't enough studies yet from those groups to actually put them together in a meta-analysis. I see. So, I see. One example would be Jonathan Green's group. He does the PACT intervention. It's an acronym for Parent Assisted Communication Therapy, I think. Yes. 
Um, and he, his studies are, they check almost all the boxes. Like their, the randomization is appropriate. They have at least some assessments with masked assessors. Attrition is low. Um, and in his more recent studies, he's also monitoring and reporting adverse events. And finally, if you look at the studies he's published late, lately, his conflicts of interest statements are really long. Like he's, you know, I, so I think that even at the initial publication of Project AIM, we listed his work as exemplary or their group's work as exemplary. And I think it's even gotten better since then. And I, I, I think it's important to point out that he, so when you have these exemplary studies, mm. the effects tend to be quite modest. Mm. So it, he's not making these like kind of um, big claims about the effectiveness of the intervention. They're small effects and maybe over time we'll see effects that are larger, but right now we are, we're, we're kind of, um, you know, we're not saying anything huge about what we're doing, but we think it's promising. And why is that? Why, why can't he make huge claims? Well, because I don't think his findings warrant it. So I think he's just you know, has a more critical eye to his own findings than, mm. than many research studies do. I see. I see. So it's quite possible that it's possible to have a, a a study that results in something big and huge and amazing. But it sounds like if folks had all of the quality indicators in place, there's probably less of a chance they'd find something really cool and yeah. amazing as often as they right. do. It's yeah, it, right. So it does seem to be the case that having all of your quality indicators in place means that your findings are probably not going to be like earth shattering. Mm -hmm. Interesting nonetheless, but um, they tend to go together. You know, that if you really are being appropriate about your design, you're probably not going to show some huge astronomical change in your participants. Mm -hmm. Okay, so let, let's talk about some of these other indicators because you've done like a, a lot of research on, on some of them specifically. So conflict of interest, I think everyone knows what conflict of interest is, uh, but but maybe they don't. And so yeah, what, they don't. <laughs> what does what, what are we talking about here? Well, it's not uh, it actually is kind of a hard question. So mm. a conflict of interest is anytime a researcher has some sort of relationship that makes it beneficial for them to show positive results of their study. So if you're an intervention researcher, it means that you have some relationship, which could be financial, it could be a personal or um, ideological relationship where you want to show that your intervention uh, showed positive effects mm -hmm. and you're, you stand to gain from that finding. Mm -hmm. So it, I say it's complicated because a different where in, in terms of research, where it's important people be upfront about their conflicts of interest is in the conflict of interest disclosure statement that is usually required when you publish academic mm -hmm. research. So different journals have different uh, policies when it comes to what you mm -hmm. have to report. And oftentimes those policies can be quite vague so that it mm -hmm. isn't entirely clear what relationships you actually need to disclose. Mm -hmm. That being said, there are some types of relationships where it's not vague, that most researchers who have these, or most journals that have these policies make it quite clear that that type of relationship does have to be disclosed. Mm -hmm. So I'll give you an example of mm -hmm. one that I think is pretty obvious and one that might be more up in the air. Mm -hmm. So a, a relationship that I think you'd be hard pressed to find a journal that has a conflict of interest policy, but you'd be hard pressed to find one that doesn't require you to, to uh, disclose, for example, your employment. So if you are employed to provide an intervention that you are also studying, 
Mm. You have to disclose that relationship. Mm -hmm. And that's usually very clear uh, in, in journals. One that might be, that could be more vague is if you are, let's say, a university professor and you are in a department that prepares BCBAs. Mm. Let's say you don't even teach courses in that program, but you are you are employed in that department. Is that a conflict of interest? You know, you, mm. you probably don't stand to gain financially directly, but uh, there are indirect ways that you would probably have an incentive to publish mm -hmm. or to, to find positively in favor of a behavioral intervention. Mm. So I'm looking at you uh, experimental ABA researchers out there because I feel like someone could do a really nice behavior analytic study on this you know you're talking about incentives you're talking about motivations you know what 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 makes a researcher decide to disclose certain things and not disclose other things uh you know there's a lot of interesting researcher behaviors here that you're talking about and it seems right. like it seems like it seems like it could be really easy for the researcher to pass the buck to the journal sure yeah um yes Although, um, what we found, so we did a study, uh, we looked at behavioral journals specifically. We looked okay. at autism intervention research published over a one-year period in yeah. eight different behavioral journals. Um, we found that it, we, we only looked at employment conflicts of interest. So mm -hmm. if a study had at least one author on the research team who was a BCBA, uh, uh, ABA provider, working, not just that they had a BCBA, but that they were, you know, affiliated with, you know, providing that service. Right. And we found that it was pretty pervasive, that that it was it was the majority of studies had at least one author with that conflict of interest, and it mm. was almost never disclosed. Hmm. I, th I think we found like one instance of a study where they actually disclosed that. So in some journals, they just didn't publish conflict of interest disclosure statements. So it's not so odd that that wouldn't be disclosed if the journal doesn't require it at all. Mm. However, there were this other group of studies where they did require it, and there were disclosure statements that said the authors report no conflicts of interest. Even so, though they were working for as ABA providers. Yes, that's correct. We found plenty of those examples. So it's it seems to be um, it's kind of the collusion of a lot of different groups. It's the researchers mm -hmm. themselves never disclosing it. It's the editors who are not looking into this. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's so when you submit and publish an article, you often have to say your affiliation. And that goes in the, you know, the title right under the yep. title. You have your authors and affiliations. Right. So sometimes a, an author would list their affiliation as a clinic, let's say, mm -hmm. but they would not, you know, that, then you would look to the bottom of the article and you'd see the author's report, no conflicts of interest. Mm -hmm. So it's not that they weren't like, it, 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 see, that's a problem. Like the, the editor then at that point should have said, no, I can see that you have a conflict mm -hmm. of interest because you're listing this as your affiliation. Mm -hmm. That wasn't always the case. You know, sometimes uh, an author has multiple affiliations and they might list the one that's not a conflict of interest and then it's harder to find. Mm. Wow. Okay. So 
No, no. If someone is honest and 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 you know, and maybe not just honest, but you know, is you know reflective and and realizes that there may be you know conflicts that aren't part of, part of the policy, but they report them anyway. That those people probably exist. Maybe no. Oh, people that report conflicts of interest that even even beyond what's required by that specific journal. Oh, do those people exist? Uh, they do. They tend not to be behavioral researchers, however. Mm, I think there are examples of great conflict of interest statements. uh, And then there are examples of pretty egregious omissions. So I guess the question I have, though, is is how, if there are folks that, so let's just say all all of the journals, you know, up their standards and, and and now require all all the sort of things you're mentioning as you know a, 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 to to sort of document those as conflict of interests, and they and they and they write a beautiful you know conflict of interest statement on the paper. How does that change anything as far as the results of that study? Well, so it might not right away, but conflict of interest statements are important because they encourage readers to apply appropriate scrutiny. So if you see a conflict of interest, you're going to read very carefully and you're going to look at the methods and say, was this conducted appropriately or um, do I have reason to believe that the conflicts of interest affected the study? So what should happen is that when you have significant conflicts of interest, and this is true not just for behavioral studies, but for any autism Mm -hmm. intervention research, one thing that we found in Project AIM where we looked at all different kinds of interventions is that researchers often examine the interventions that they themselves developed. Mm. And and this is okay. There's nothing wrong with this, but you should build in procedures where you partition the researchers who have conflicts of interest like that from issues that involve data collection and analysis. Mm. So for example, let's say that you have someone who developed an intervention and they want to study it in a research project. That person could be in charge of training all the interventionists who are going to be a part of the study. Mm. They're there to to provide training. They're going to teach people how to do it. They're going to make sure that it's done to fidelity, whatever. But they're not involved in recruitment. They're not involved in randomization. Mm. They're not involved in data collection. And they're not involved in statistics. They are partitioned from that. And you can write that into your methods. We dealt with our conflicts of interest Mm. in this way. Very good. That makes a lot of sense. So what you this... would not want is the re, you know researchers with conflicts of interest saying, "I'm the one who collected the data. I'm the one who observed and decided, you know, scored participants on how they were doing." Mm. That that would not make sense because they would have a vested interest in finding that participants did better either in the intervention group or during the intervention phase. Right. Wow. Okay. So a couple, a couple, a couple thoughts. Um, one, this is making me think about sort of everything I've learned about reading research and, and, and I'm wondering are, 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 you know, and obviously you can't speak to sort of anything beyond your own university, I suppose, but are grad students taught all this stuff? I mean, I don't, I don't know that I was taught any of this when I was taught to sort of analyze a research study and, and you know, no. and, and do a summary and whatnot. Yeah, probably not. I was not taught this in grad school. This is all stuff that I learned well after I graduated. I wasn't taught this in my post. I mean, some of it, I think I came across when I was a postdoc, but it was definitely not, 
it was not sufficiently addressed while I was a grad student. Mm -hmm. This may be different in other places, but um, issues like conflicts of interest, I don't think are given adequate attention. And they should be given especially adequate attention in fields where you are duly trained as a researcher and provider. Those fields need to have this as part of the curriculum. Yeah. So another thing I'm wondering about is, and I don't know if your studies touch on this, but it, but is IOA, so the inter-observer agreement. Mm-hmm. Um, um, because I because I, I I just sort of think about the the situation where you have, like you said, the the practitioner who's now doing the coding and and the investigating and 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 potential and has this potential bias in terms of sort of how he or she's observing said behaviors and coding them. Um, I suppose if he were the one training the other coders, which again, I, I guess is a problem, then he's sort of training everybody to his own bias, uh, right. potentially. But if he's not training the other coders, then there's probably, then we should be seeing that maybe in the IOA, like we, there should be sort of a, a lower IOA, no? Yeah, right. Unless you're training in the biases that are going to right. inform your study. And IOA, I just don't think is sufficient protection against that because yeah. IOA is usually done on only a very small subset of um, the data. The researchers often know which sessions are going to be the IOA sessions. So mm-hmm. it would be very easy to you know code appropriately on those sessions and then code differently on the non-IOA sessions. And the inter-observer agreement, the standard is not that it is perfect. Usually mm-hmm. the standard is some, somewhere around like 80% agreement. Yes, yes, yes. Yeah, and that's plenty of room uh, that could make the difference between, you know, having results that you would interpret as saying there was an effect versus yeah. there was no effect. So I don't think that that's helpful, you know, just, no. just having IOA. No, not, me neither. And I often had wondered about sort of, you know, these studies where, you know, the, well, an IOA was 82%. Well, what was going on there? Like, you're, you're, right. how, how are you missing that? Like, yeah. Um, and so, and so, but it's, again, we're not sort of trained to sort of, you know, scrutinize that. Like, and I don't know, maybe this is just me because I'm, um, you know, I'm, uh, I, I struggle with, you know, just reading text in general. And, uh, and, but I think a lot of folks tend to skip over all of the, initial stuff they read a bit of the intro and they jump right to the discussion um, yeah. when they're reading papers and then and or maybe there are some folks probably just read the abstract um um but i think a lot of folks tend to skip most of those other sections um and so it's probably really easy to miss you know a lot of these uh, conflicts and 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 sort of biases uh, you know even even in sort of your regular reading so if, if nobody's picking up on this stuff um um What, what what do we do about it? <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, we have to tell people to pick up on it. Yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, I think like understanding that the stakes are very high and that if we're not conducting particularly rigorous research, that means we're going to have a whole set of services to support autistic people that doesn't actually support them. Mm-hmm. And, you know, presumably none of us would want that. So we mm-hmm. we would want to have, um, you know, some political will to to stop doing studies with poor quality controls and start doing studies that are are going to tell us what we want to know. You're kind of popping a bubble that a lot of us have in in behavior analysis that we think, you know, we do a ton of really good research 
and that uh, you know that that we can apply our stuff to any our, our 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 sort of science our technology or whatever to anything and and have some real big changes. But essentially, you're telling us that uh, you know at least as far as our early intervention research goes, you know it's it's like our early intervention research is what has led to most of the autism uh, treatment kind of funding um, yeah. in the U.S. and in Canada for sure, which which it, is at least in Canada, or I should say, at least in British Columbia, British Columbia and Ontario are kind of the two provinces that I think that have the the, the biggest sort of funding models. And in in British Columbia, it came entirely out of a court case that parents won um, using, you know, and, and in for for those that are involved in the case, listening to this episode. If I, I'm sure I'm leaving a lot of details, but. They they they're using like Lovas's research as sort of you know the evidence in the court case to say you know this stuff works, and so yeah. so now you're basically telling me that the courts are even you know <laughs> yeah I think it's tricky because I understand that if I was a parent I would say I want services and I want you to sh- you know what's the best service according to the evidence and yeah. I I think it's hard. Um, to parse through it all. Right. Um, you know, there's a lot of different, like you said, it's not like I can't, I, it's hard for me to even talk about research quality in like normal lay language because yeah. it is. Quite difficult. Absolutely. Um, Absolutely. Yeah. So, and, and I think also that things change over time. So mm-hmm. it could have been at one point that maybe, I don't know if this is true or not, but at one point, maybe behavioral research did have the best evidence. Mm. It certainly does not now, in my opinion, you know, from applying risk of bias tools across a whole variety of um, groups of intervention, not just for early childhood, but through transition age, um, the intervention, the the research quality is not great. Um, I do understand that parents may then feel like, well, now what, what do we do? Um, And that could be a segue into saying, well, let's also talk about harms. Um, because, you know, there is a long history in autism research saying, well, maybe the evidence isn't great, but it can't, it can't be bad. Like, you know, either it's going to do nothing or it's going to, um, help. Mm-hmm. Like there's no third option. Well, the third option is that it, it's actually harmful. Mm-hmm. So, you know, you're not just weighing the quality of the evidence. You're saying what's the, you know, the quality of the evidence to saying that it's beneficial against mm-hmm. what is the potential for harm. So when you pair those two things together, mm. low quality evidence plus right. very little analysis of the potential for harm, then I would say, well, we don't have any reason to implement this. The evidence just isn't good enough. And the potential for harm is definitely exists. So, you know, until we have more information, we can't recommend this. That is a great segue <laughs> uh, because... And I, and I and 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 I really want to dive into the harms piece because that's essentially what you know a lot of you know a lot of the folks that are having problems with applied behavior analysis are saying is that is that the application of ABA principles can cause harm to us as autistic individuals, and we need you to recognize that. And and the battle back is our research shows. It doesn't. It, it, it that our, our research is good, right? Well, they, maybe yeah. they don't say it doesn't cause harm. Well, they do. They they say our research yeah. does not show any indicators of you know abuse or harm or whatnot. But you're saying that um, we don't even 
you know, as as a field, even look at harms, um, or, at right. least, or at least publish about them. Um, and so, right. tell me more about that. Yeah, so I think that you know, if if researchers in any field in autism intervention said, well, we don't, we, there's no evidence that our that our interventions cause harm. That's a particularly insidious statement because mm-hmm. it is the intervention researchers who should have been collecting this evidence but have not. So part of a quality assessment is one, determining risks of bias, and then two, the uh, assessing the adequacy of monitoring and reporting adverse events. And so mm-hmm. that's one thing that we found is that across the board, there is almost no monitoring and assessment or monitoring and reporting of adverse events. So it's a nice trick for interventionists to pull or intervention researchers to say, well, there's no evidence that it causes harm. Well, there's never going to be unless you actually assess it. And and nobody does that. So um, using that as grounds to ignore people saying that this has been detrimental to me is I, I just can't wrap my head around. Like, it's just the most insidious, like, uh, lie, you know, it, no so, one has done a, a, a study saying we have assessed harms and right. we found that none occurred. No one has right. done. That. Wow. So, so the statement isn't our research shows that our, you know, our intervention doesn't cause harm. The statement is we don't look for harm. So right. we have not as a field. Exactly. As a field, we have neglected to ever assess this. And Mm. so we do not know. The second secret word is conflict. And and so that's what you're talking about when uh, in terms of sort of reporting adverse events. And so that's right. Let's let's dig into some of that research. You have a couple couple papers that kind of kind of talk about this. And so. I know. I know. One thing you found early on, when I was reading, is that basically only. I think you. I don't know how many studies you looked at, but only two of them reported adverse events, and those reports were that there were no adverse events. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that was in the uh, transition age, review. right? So, in that study, we examined. I think it was 193 studies conducted on transition age autistic youth. Mm. And 70% of those were behavioral. Mm. Um, And I don't even, I don't remember if it was two of the 193, only two mentioned adverse events. And they didn't have robust protocols for assessing them, but they put, you know, in the paper, no adverse events occurred. Mm. Um, So I can't tell you that none actually did occur because those researchers didn't tell me how they assessed it. I think one of them did. One of them had a um, a social validity assessment, and the question was, the the parents would rate it as either true or false. Uh, my child experienced no negative effects by participating in this intervention, and it was even framed that way. Wow! And Talk they about didn't assess the Right? They didn't assess the participant themselves. They asked the parents if the parents yeah. perceived their their child to have observed any negative effects. So it's just really inadequate. It, it's just not, you, you cannot make a statement saying our interventions don't cause harm because they just have not been assessed in any meaningful mm. way. Um, so I think dismissing those concerns, especially if they're concerns raised by autistic people is extremely inappropriate. Mm. And again, I guess clearly the journals aren't requiring that. They aren't requiring it yet. Although mm. 
after our first, um, our, our, the first study we did on adverse events was following Project AIM, and that was on the um, the uh, early early uh, intervention study. Yep. After we published that, at least one journal changed its policies and said that intervention research has to include adverse event monitoring and reporting as part of the protocol. So mm. you are right that journals have until now not been requiring it, but I think that is changing. Yeah. So. What else? What, what else? So did, do you have sort of recommendations in that regard? And, and, and are there certain kinds of, are there ways to sort of report and observe and collect and assess that sort of thing? Yeah, actually, I want to say that in our first event study, sorry, uh, let me just, so we did find two studies that had, and they were behavioral studies that discussed ad, adverse events. And I think it might be illustrative to just share with you what those studies were. Sure, yeah. So they were like in the 70s. I think one was in the 70s and the other one was in the 90s. Okay. So the one that was in the 70s, they wanted to know if there were adverse events as a result of the application of electric shock. Mm. And they could, so what they did was they um, observed these sessions, you know, uh, behavioral therapy sessions that involved shocks. And they wrote down all of the adverse effects that they perceived, and then they categorized them. And they made a list of all of the negative consequences, and then they made another list of what they perceived to all be all the positive consequences. Mm. And they said, well, one of the positives is longer. So our conclusion is that we can ignore these adverse events. So sorry, and you, had, I just, so you had like a column of eight positive events? And, and four adverse four, events. Well, there's more exactly. positive events, so we don't have to worry about that. That's exactly right. Wow. So that was researchers sort of trying to absolve themselves of the potential negative consequences of electric shock. I think that one is illustrative because many behavioral researchers now no longer think that it's appropriate to use electric shock. I know many still do because yep. we still have institutions that use it, yep. but yep. many don't. So you can see that that methodology is not a good one to determine if adverse events, um, you know, that's not a good way to weigh, uh, you know, the potential positives with potential negatives, especially if your methodology for determining the positives is very bad because that Mm. list of positives may have all been false positives. Mm. So that was one study. There was another study, I think it was published in the nineties and it was, it was about the application of aversives, not just electric shock, but any aversives and whether or not it had negative effects on the therapist. And they concluded Mm. that it didn't. In fact, therapists who used aversives were empowered by the use of them. So so using aversives is good, actually. Wow. They were not interested in whether aversives had negative effects on the participants in their intervention. It was just whether or not it was negative for the therapist. So those were the two studies that we found. So... Mm. It, you, I, I feel like it's it's worthwhile to summarize those because it does show, I think, that um, in many areas of intervention and in behavioral intervention as well, adverse events have not been taken seriously. Like the, mm. neither of those are are you could say are like a, 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 an appropriate way to actually examine the possibility of adverse events or, or harms. Well, and as well, it also opens up, you know the idea that someone could say well so as you can see the possibility of, ad- of adverse events are only going to occur when we're using aversives 
And since we mostly don't use aversives anymore, we, don't we wouldn't have any adverse effects anymore. And so yeah. we don't even have to look at that anymore. If we're not spraying them with, with you know, lemon spray or shocking them or 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 hitting them or restraining them, then 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 there can't be any negative effects. Right. Which is not true. Any intervention that has the potential to change behavior also has the potential to do harm. That's mm-hmm. they go together. So what what sorts of adverse events? Could folks be looking for? So say if we're looking at an early intervention study where we're, you know, maybe teaching, you know, com- comparing a, maybe a, a language instruction method or a, a communication method maybe to, you know, something else. Um, yeah, um, yeah. yeah, so I think that it would be helpful if researchers had a, a common uh, set of, uh, of methods for assessing adverse events. Not any, not all adverse events assessments are going to be appropriate for all kinds mm. of studies, but it would be helpful if we did at least have some common definitions. Um, you know, we make decisions about what constitutes an adverse event that mm. we would like to, to monitor and report. So I think it's helpful to make a distinction that adverse events are anything negative that happens during the intervention period, and adverse effects are negative things that happen and can reasonably be attributed to the intervention. Mm. So Adverse events, they're bad, they happened, we don't know if they were actually caused by the intervention. Adverse effects, yeah, they were definitely caused by the intervention. But we want to report both because, you know, in one group we just don't know, and the other group mm-hmm. we're pretty sure that it was a result of the intervention. So I, I think of it um, like kind of in three buckets. One bucket is things that have happened actually during the session. So while I was, you know, doing this intervention, it could be things like child distress, Injury, aggression, um, things like that. You, you just have to think about what would make sense to to examine for mm-hmm. whatever intervention. In, in the transition study, um, w- there were studies that were looking at uh, engagement and exercise, let's say. And so mm. they would go to a gym and they would do a bench press or something. Sure. Well, you know, for a study like that, I would want to know about injury, you know, yes. like all kinds of different injuries. Um, there were studies that were looking at like using a kitchen stove. You know, I would want to look about in, at injuries in that study too, burns, um, mm-hmm. you know, anything like that. So the other bucket is things that happen outside the intervention session, but still during the intervention period. Mm. So in the intervention session, everything looks fine, but at home they're having trouble sleeping. Mm. Uh, they're, um, they're not eating anymore. They're, you know, they're seem really stressed. They're not doing well in school. Transitions are harder, you know, yes. those kinds of, all of those kinds of things. And then the third bucket, which is called harms is the definition of harms is sustained deterioration. So that could be things like depression. So I participated mm. in this intervention two years ago, and I've just been getting more and more depressed ever since mm. I have um, PTSD symptoms. I have anxiety, I have OCD, you know, things like that. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. So, so this. Really interesting. So I'm thinking about sort of, you know, just kind of any intervention that we do I kind of work in positive behavior support. And so one of the sort of tenants of PBS is, and, and again, <laughs> I, I certainly think probably our research 
you know, needs needs to have the scrutiny as well. And I'll definitely going to go back and start looking at some of that stuff. But one thing we look at a lot is is um, sort of environmental events that, uh, you know, occur sort of outside of the person's control that might affect their behavior. There's a lot of those, and you talk about things, you know, like could you be sick? You know, could you have a, you know, you had a poor sleep? You know, you had, a, you know, you had an argument with your parents or whatever, and then you, and then the next day you go and you're a subject in the study again, um, and and no one's considering any of that stuff, as, you know, as part of this, and yet they still seem to believe that they have, you know, a true sort of level of experimental control. But there's all these variables that are sort of outside of, you know, the actual, you know, clinic per se, that right. might be affecting the individual's behavior. Or, as you say, there could be the effects of the study could be resulting, could, the result of the effects of these studies could be those adverse right. events in, in, the, in, in, the, in, in, the, in the home setting. And in the right. end, we're saying, you know, but this intervention worked great. Uh, uh, and 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 not sort of recognizing all of these problems, that seems like, you know, I, I I hate to say this to you, behavior analysts, but that seems like a no brainer to be looking at some of those things, and they don't. Yes. So. Wow. So so, do you have some recommendations? Do you have sort of like uh, tools that you, folks can use to sort of, you know, look at some of these things or. Yeah, so there are, I think there are protocols like adverse event protocols. And yep. you know, you can do you can just search for ones that would be appropriate for what right. you're measuring. Um, but I feel like what I hear you're saying is that like as a behaviorist, you already have like you're considering these things. You you're looking at behavior anyway. Like yeah. it, we did find, I, I can't think of like the specific study, but what we found in our two studies that have looked at adverse events in, in, in the primary research was never reported, but we did find evidence that it happened. So for example, um, you know, there was a study, a behavioral study, and it was, it would say something like um, in their description of the interventions, I think it was in the fidelity portion, like mm. for two sessions, it would have a description like this for two of the intervention sessions the participant showed extreme aggression. And so we were unable to continue the session. Mm. That's an adverse event. They didn't record it as such. That was not their purpose in describing that, but we saw it anyway. Mm -hmm. So it's not that you don't have the tools to notice it or measuring it, measure it. You're just not conceptualizing it as an adverse event that you need mm -hmm. to report as an adverse event. Mm -hmm. And is it possible that if folks were reporting these adverse events, that then their research wouldn't get published? Uh, that shouldn't happen. Like, I don't, I can't, I'm not in it. I don't know where participants, where people are publishing their studies. I can't right. speak to every journal, but I'm certain that publication bias is playing into this. It's mm. hard to get a study uh, published where you sh show null effects. So like if you do an intervention and you show that your study didn't, work then you it, you're gonna have a hard time getting that published mm -hmm. so these are like structural things built in that make it harder for people to follow some of these ethical rules and i think that's super problematic but there are things like pre-registration where you basically get your study approved before you even conduct it and th those kinds of things you know open science kinds of things will help protect against that mm -hmm. 
Yeah, you make an interesting point about sort of the null hypothesis piece too, because is that something in in well, first off, I think there's uh, would be a lot of value in knowing, you know, the 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 interventions that didn't work. Yes, right. You know exactly. Um, As someone who does meta analysis, I want to find those. <laughs> and yet, those aren't getting published. Right. Right. Or they're 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 harder to publish. But I think there are efforts outside of my work and outside of autism research that are saying this is a problem. Mm. So things like pre-registration or you know mm. registered reports are are trying to move the needle on that. Can you just describe that again? Then what that what what that means and what that involves pre-registration. Yeah, so a registered report is when you have your study uh, accepted as a protocol. So Mm. um, you design a study. uh, Basically, you write your introduction and your methods. You submit it to a journal, and they Mm. accept it on the soundness of your methods. Mm. So then they say, you know, you go through review. They say, yep, we accept this. And then you go do the study. And they have already accepted it. It doesn't matter mm. what you found. They've already accepted it. Mm. So you don't have an incentive to find that the intervention worked. You can just say what you found. Oh, I see. So for so for journals that accept pre-registration, you could have or you could have, you know, null results or or, or whatever, and, and yes. they're still going to publish because they've agreed to right. that. They've already the beginning. agreed. Yeah. Uh, exactly. Lovely. Lovely. I do because I do know there there's uh, there's one new journal that's come out in in sort of our field and um, uh, called uh, Seven Dimensions, mm-hmm. um, and it's uh, a guy Shane Spiker and some of his colleagues have have started this journal, and 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 they 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 put out at least one issue and I think they they might be making it an annual issue where they only publish the null hypotheses. Uh, oh, uh, research yeah. in in the uh-huh. journal to kind of start to sort of try to get some of that work out, which is kind of fun. I'm wondering then, because one of the other arguments that you're going to hear, and 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 I hate <laughs> this argument for everything because I hear you hear this sort of, you know, for sort of every every sort of long-standing sort of practice that is due for a change, this is the argument. And it's, the argument is, we've always done it that way, or everybody does it that way. So what's the problem? Are there other are there other fields that aren't doing any of these things, that are, doing, that are reporting these things and are doing things correctly and are put, sort of putting out kind of quality research without sort of these adverse events and conflicts of interest issues? Or is, yeah, this, is so, this across science? I think it probably is across science. It, I, you know, I haven't done like a comparative study sure. to, you know, um, compare our field to like <clears throat> another area of disability, for example. Yeah. Um, I Weirdly, I think that like, I don't think things are perfect in the medical field, but mm. like definitions and protocols for conflict of interest reporting and adverse event reporting are all over the medical field. Okay. You know, I'm not like defending that research, but they sure. at least have, you know, it's an expectation that you report your conflicts of interest um, and <clears throat> that you would report at, you know, adverse events have to be like everybody now is like an armchair epidemiologist because of COVID. And we all know which vaccines right. we got, the brand and all that stuff. And yep. 
I feel like we might have, you know, we can think about like, I certainly was interested in looking at these trials of vaccines and seeing what kinds of adverse events were reported as part of those. Like we were all waiting for this safety information to come out, um, you know, before we would sign up and take the vaccine. So mm-hmm. um, we expect it in other, it, you know, if you go in and have a medical procedure you, and your doctor's like, I think you should do this. You might say, yeah, okay, well, what are the downsides? Yeah. You know, that's, it's kind of standard in some other aspects of our life. Um, and I think it's worth, um, th- this, uh, researcher that I really admire, who I have modeled a lot of my research after Michelle Dawson, she wrote a follow-up to our adverse events, uh, article. And she had a great point, which is that it could be somewhat specific to autism research and maybe other areas of disability because, because of ableism, we, we feel that autistic people are unharmable. Mm. So nothing we do is ever going to be as bad as just being autistic. So if we neglect to monitor and report adverse events, well, oh, well, it's so bad. You know, the state of being an autistic person is so bad. It's, it's really not a problem. Yes, that is really true. And I think that's, that's another good segue uh, because I wanted to look at some of the other research that you've done that sort of uh, relates to those pieces. Um, This is just, so fascinating and and there is that sort of but there actually before i get into that there was a tool that you used to sort of assess all these biases so so clearly someone has come up with something to look at this stuff can you tell me just a little bit about that tool yeah so we use the risk of bias assessment tool that was developed by the cochrane collaboration which is a group of researchers who um create tools and standards for meta-analyses. So Mm. meta-analyses is what we did where you put together a whole body of research and evaluate it. So here are some rubrics to evaluate this research. That, uh, the Cochrane Collaboration develops tools for group design research, and there haven't been good analogous tools for single case design research Mm. until recently. They're now, I think it was 2018, um, Brian Reichow and his colleagues developed a tool for single case design research that was analogous to the Cochrane tool. And I think that, that those tools are important because they're cross-disciplinary. So mm-hmm. a lot of times, like if you know, if you've heard of the, um, like the autism standards project, there, there's yes. a lot of them. There's these groups of evaluators yep. that have created autism specific standards for evaluating research and they tend to be just arbitrarily lowered. So mm-hmm. I don't like those because they don't ac- account for things like random assignment and mass assessment. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I don't know why, I don't know why in autism research, we have to do away with those quality indicators. Mm-hmm. So I want to use the cross-disciplinary tools yes. that are developed by people without conflicts of interest that have no investment in this field and aren't just trying to tell everyone a good story. Like I lowered my standards until I was able to tell you that everything works. Yeah. And I don't want to do that. I want to use cross-disciplinary standards and give a straight picture of what the research is telling us. Yes. Can you just tell me a little bit then about what you found? Because that first study you talked about with the project aim essentially mm-hmm. eliminated all the single case designs um, um, because they, they didn't sort of come up with snuff for sort of the group design standards. What kinds of things did you find as far as issues with sort of single subject design? Because there's been a lot of 
that that is the bulk of our research and the bulk of sort of how we, you know, sort of kind of get our point across to people is through single case right. studies. Yes. And a lot of people say, oh, well, if you had looked at the single case designs, you would have found more favorable research, you know, better quality. I'm not really sure what the argument was. But, yeah. So we did a follow-up study, uh, a, a different study after Project AIM that was for autistic kids up to age eight. We did right. another study for the transition age um, autistic kids and yes. we included single case designs and we used this risk of bias tool for that study. We had one for the group design and one for the single case design. Mm. We, we found that the single case design was just as bad, if not worse, as, mm. as you know the problems with the, the, the areas that were problematic in the group design research. So if you think about how single case design is done, um, here, so I'll just talk about two things, which are yeah. like my, my things that I fixate on. Sure. One is, is randomization. I think that a lot of people don't think randomization applies to single case design. Yes. But let's say that you have a uh, multiple baseline across participants. You okay. have three participants. Yep. Um, you know, you're supposed to decide about movement between phase phases when you establish your baseline. So who goes first, who gets put into the experience? you know, the treatment phase first. Yes. You you could decide, well, I'm going to have Johnny go first because he's having a great day today. You know, he's going to do real well in the intervention. Mm. So that is not appropriate. That's a, that's a source of bias that you are introducing in your research. Mm -hmm. So once you've established a baseline, there should be a random component to determining who goes first into the intervention phase. Mm. If it's not random, then your biases about who's going to do better are going to inform your decision about phase shifts. Of course, yeah. So that's one one thing. You can have a random component in, in single case design research. The second is masked assessors. So you have to have someone who does not know if the participant is currently in the baseline condition or the intervention condition. Mm. If they know, that is a problem. They are going to score the participant differently based on their knowledge of whether they're in baseline or treatment. Yes. And I think that it's going to take some innovation to determine how you can have someone not know. Because if your, um, you know, intervention is really obvious, then right. then it's not going to be, you're not going to have a masked assessment. And it's, it's I'm not going to buy it. You know, I'm not going to say, okay, I think that was a fair assessment. Mm. So um, especially if you are pairing things like unmasked assessment and people with conflicts of interest conducting the research. Yes. So it is so it is possible. So you're not saying that single case design is useless. I'm not saying it's useless. I'm but I I am saying that these problems appeared to be pretty pervasive. There were not mm. a lot of single case design studies that had in fact we had like over a thousand outcomes and there wasn't a single one that was measured in a context where there was both randomization and mass assessment. Wow. No, not one. So but, but I also think that single case design research is limited in a couple of respects. Mm. It So there's, I'm trying to like put on my non-researcher language yes. <laughs> and explain this in a way that will make sense to people. So in single case design research, you often have to measure the behavior of interest in the intervention context because yes. that's how single case design uh, research works. Um so you, there's this issue of generalization. So yes. you're, I don't know if the, if, if it actually, um, if that 
behavior is important or there or whatever outside of the context of the intervention. Mm -hmm. A lot of people will say, well, don't worry, we have these generalization probes. Well, I worry because those generalization probes are not measured with an experimental design. Um, there's usually not the same rigor toward measuring those generalization probes as the intervention. Mm. Uh, you know, it, So you don't have, I've never, maybe one exists, but I've never seen it. I've never seen a single case design study where I have any information about the participant's behavior and the generalization condition prior to the intervention. So yeah. I don't know what to compare it to. So maybe it was always that high in the generalization phase. But I don't know because you didn't measure it before you did the intervention. Mm. So that's one thing. I tend to only know what I call context-bound behavior. Mm. You know, what do I care if this behavior is being displayed while they're being given reinforcement and have all the structure of the intervention? That's probably not going to be their life. And so that's one thing. The other thing is that the way that single case design research, it tends to be measuring behavior that is directly targeted by the intervention. So I call that overly proximal. And because I'm not a behavior, I'm not a behaviorist, I'm a developmentalist, I care about behavior that shows me it's going to continue to develop after the intervention has stopped. Because mm. I want to influence a developmental process, not just a single behavior that I directly taught. Mm. Does that make sense? Have I well, can you get maybe give an example of what that that might look like as far as a, a, a behavior developing versus just yeah. So Okay, so a developmental example would be if my intervention focused on joint attention. Yeah. So I'm focusing on joint attention, but I'm not actually going to measure joint attention. Mm. I'm going to measure the child's language because my hypothesis is that by uh, targeting joint attention, I have tapped into a developmental process whereby having achieved joint attention, they're going to develop language. Mm. So that is measuring something distal to the intervention. And I'm assuming that they're going to continue to grow well after I'm uh, I see. I see. If I only measure what I directly taught, there's not going to be continued building on that outcome, you know, mm. far after I'm gone. Yes. Okay, that makes sense. All right. Cool. I'm just looking at some of my notes because you, you touched on something that I was going to ask about, but I think you kind of covered it. Yeah, the, the context sort of bound versus generalizing yeah and then there's something else you talked about related to that was um uh this idea is, is this what you mean by scope of change or is that yes that's exactly it yep okay so basically the, does it go beyond you know that particular situation and that particular the context right yeah yes yeah. yep and most of the stuff but but you're saying that it's it it, it is possible for single case research to look at these things they just don't or well i uh i think it's i don't know if it's possible i mm. i know i haven't i haven't seen it I, I i haven't seen examples of how you would measure um measure change that is much wider in scope than what seems to be reported in single case designs yeah yeah the third secret word is event really interesting well, I want I want to switch gears for a second because you got you have some other really cool research that I think is really important to the conversation, um, uh, particularly around kind of um, around ableism. Uh, ableism mm -hmm. has become a word that's been 
thrown around a lot lately, um, you know, and, uh, you know, to the point where some folks are getting quite offended by it, um, you know, in our field anyway, um, you know, and, uh, you know, I, I think I, I overheard um, a prominent, a very, a very prominent, well-known uh, behavior analyst who's, you know, I think at the forefront of, 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 uh, some positive changes, I think, in our in in our research, actually say that they were they were labeled as ableist and, he, and just kind of shrugged that off. You know, said I'm tired of the word. I'm tired of being called that. Um, you know, uh, I'm going to do what I'm going to do. Um, and so I, I feel like folks don't don't really take the term seriously enough. And I think um, I think you made a great point about how you know we don't think autistic folks are could could be in any worse of a situation than they already are due to the fact that they are autistic and how incredibly insulting that must be to someone who's autistic you yeah, know yeah. you know um because we we are you know i think one thing we're learning about you know with autistic folks is there's a lot of you know there's 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 well there's tons of things that 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 they're proud of and 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 should be proud of and 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 the amazing skills and you know amazing achievements and and uh there, there's some brilliant autistic researchers out there now they're doing some really cool work um lots of really good stuff kind of happening um but you talk about um there's two studies i kind of wanted to look at one was the one where you talk about uh um are you still with me yeah, yeah. Okay, sorry, your 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 screen froze for a second. Okay. Uh, uh, or or you're just in Zen mode. Um uh one one entitled uh, Studies of Autistic Traits in the General Population are not studies of autism. Can you tell me a little bit about that one? So that was just that wasn't a study, that was oh. just a letter to the editor. Okay. Um so there are uh I think over the pandemic. Um, you know, a lot of us pivoted to research that was like easier co to conduct online. Right. Um, and so a lot of uh, like survey research where you use a measure like the autism quote, uh, the the AQ, the autism quotient to, mm. to basically it's a, a measure that assesses autistic traits. Okay. So it's not a diagnostic instrument, but you can deliver it online and you can get someone's score and then you can correlate that score with some something else that you're interested in. Mm. So our letter, this was um, led by my colleague, Noah Sasson, was basically saying, this isn't studying autistic people. Like you can't just, you know, survey 9,000 people, get a score on the AQ and find that autistic traits correlate with who knows what and say, mm. okay, now we've found that autistic people are more likely to do X. You haven't studied autistic people. Mm. You studied the general population. So traits and um, autism are different. Um, you I know, I, I think some of the things that we wanted to say is like, a lot of people are like, oh, you know, autism is as a spectrum. Everybody's a little autistic. Right. And we all, it's all just a spectrum of these traits. Yes. Well, there is a point in a combination of these traits where you experience ableism because of them. And mm. it doesn't matter how I score on the AQ, I don't experience that. So I think there is a qualitative difference between my whatever my score on the aq is because i am mm. non-autistic i don't experience i don't have any experience of being autistic mm. it's you know what i mean like that's I not it. i get it yeah As, essentially we shouldn't really be 
applying the term autistic to things that don't have to do with people with a diagnosis of autism. Yeah. You know, and and right? I, I want to be careful because I also want to say that I understand that like there are people who don't have access to diagnosis. Yes. And so I'm, I'm, I'm not saying that there are people who understand themselves to be autistic, even yes. if they have not had a formal yes. diagnosis. I'm not critiquing that at all. I'm right. saying that I do not identify and do not have the experience of being autistic. So my score on the AQ is not informative for understanding autism. So right. it, was, it, it was just a, a tendency of researchers to act as if they had studied autistic people when they used these measures, when in fact mm -hmm. they had not. And I suppose as well, if, if say I were to do the autistic, uh, I think I might have done the AQ once myself um, and, and, and actually scored pretty high, but um, <laughs> uh, but by scoring pretty high or, you know, potentially having a lot of autistic traits, as it were, I, I, I it would be very ableist of me to now go, I understand how you feel, autistic person. Yeah, I'm not sure what that would, you know, you would. Yeah, you. I, I don't think an expression of understanding is ever necessarily harmful, but but mm. you wouldn't want to claim, you know, to understand things that you don't experience, and right. a lot of them have to do with it's not like it, being autistic is not determined by your score in the AQ. It's right. determined by you know a whole range of other things. Yeah. Um. And so you you probably wouldn't have a lot to add to that conversation by virtue of the fact that you you. I don't know whether you identify as autistic, exactly. but if you don't, then, you know, it's, it's probably not a helpful yeah. part of the conversation. Let's talk about this other study, which, uh, or, or it's not a study again, but I think it's a commentary. Um, uh, uh, and I think even right there, I, you, you've got to be careful because it's really easy to call things a study. Oh, yes. right. You know, and it's, <laughs> and, it's, and it's really easy to sort of mislead people by saying, I read a study, you mm -hmm. know, and then they make a bunch of assumptions about what study is going to be. Some of these aren't studies. These are commentaries. These are letters. Um, these sure, are yeah. these are points based on discussion. But can you tell us a bit about the uh, av avoiding ableist language suggestions for autism researchers thing? I think this is this is really interesting to me. And and um, uh, yeah, a couple of things a couple of things right away stand out for me um, um, that aren't even necessarily specific to the point of of the uh, 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 of the article. I really like how. And I'm seeing this more and more, these detailed sort of lay abstracts and lay summaries that are that are now starting to come out and basically saying, you know, let's get rid of the jargon that's just confusing people and um, and and start talking in kind of, you know, uh, you know, typical folk language. So I really like that the article kind of starts with that. Um, but let's let's talk about just sort of. Uh, how you came to write this and kind of where what where you got your information and 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 kind of what 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 you discovered here um yes yeah, so i uh, i think part of the impetus for writing this was wanting to have somewhere to go when i wrote an article and used identity first language and got mm. pushback from reviewers mm -hmm, mm -hmm. uh and then and that's done not even you know that's just one of many issues we yep. ended up discussing yep. in this paper but um, what we ended up doing is compiling a huge amount of scholarship by autistic people, researchers and non-researchers who, mm -hmm. you know, dating back at least 10 years, but probably more, 15 mm -hmm. years, um, who have discussed these issues about how the language we use to talk about autism yes. conveys ableist ideologies. And we might not even know it. 
we might, because we haven't examined our language, we might be like, well, I'm not ableist. This doesn't apply to me. And we wanted to just offer an explanation how those ideologies manifest in your language nonetheless. Mm-hmm. Okay, cool. And and it it starts right away with just a, a, a great table. And, and I was surprised at some of them and and not surprised at some of the other ones. So uh, there there is quite a bit of language that we use that essentially kind of falls into the sort of, uh, reminds me of the, the discussion of sort of the medical versus social model of disability. Yeah. Um, and, 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 and that a lot of our language looks at autism as a disease, mm-hmm. you know, uh, much like cancer or heart disease or any of these other sorts of, um, you know, obvious, you know, uh, biological disorders that cause pain and horrible pain and discomfort and illness and death, you know, mm-hmm. essentially, you know, that's what a disease is. Whereas, uh, you know, we, we, we know from over and over again, from, you know, individual autistic folks speaking that, you know, many, many folks are quite, you know, quite happy and, 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 and live yeah. quite positive lives and look at, and look at their autistic traits as strengths and, 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 and so they should. Um, what are some of the things, some of the things I just kind of, I thought, and you know, I'll just kind of read that, that, that were, so you kind of, you, you kind of categorize them. You have, uh, patronizing language, you have, uh, medicalized language. So I kind of, I would just touch on there and then you've got, uh, sort of ableist discourses. So ways of kind of discussing autism and, uh, they're, they're, they're quite quite telling I, special needs and special interests though were sort of the first to read and 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 I don't know that a lot of folks would 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 think of those as being problematic yeah I I mean we we I would have to look at the references on that table sure. um there are um disabled people who have written about how mm. terms like special needs are are, are patronizing right um and there are articles I I'm blanking on the author like our needs aren't special like we mm-hmm. just want rights and access, just like everybody else. Mm -hmm. And there's nothing special about that. And Mm -hmm. calling them special tends to mean we don't get the accommodations that we need. Mm -hmm. Um, So, uh, and and things like special interests, like if you were to think about like, why is it that when autistic people are very interested in something, it's special, but Mm -hmm. when I'm very interested in something, it's my, my job, I'm a professional and that's my area of expertise. Yes. Um, So it conveys something about whether how and whether we value people's um you know needs and characteristics it's really segregating uh in a way and and separating you know i mean uh like you say you know as soon as i hear special interest i assume autistic individual uh because that's 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 what they they get into me it's a passion or, right. or, you know, a passion hobby, project yeah. or, or a right. hobby or, or, you know, something I'm excited about. Uh, for them, it's it's one of these special interests that we can use in our intervention. Um, yeah, right, right. You know, and I think it's it can be infantilized, you know. That, yes. Um, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, things, things like which we see all the time, challenging behavior, disruptive behavior, problem behavior as sort of. Yeah. So those terms don't indicate for whom it is a problem mm. you know like some of these things that are construed as problem behavior i mean we're look, trying to look into this as another one of our secondary analyses but things that get categorized as problem behaviors will be things like you know raising their hand too many times in class mm. 
you know, things that are rather mundane and really they're just not typical or, or they don't fit into some fictional ideal of how someone would behave. Mm. Um, so it's just not a helpful term, um, you know, because it doesn't indicate that there is a point of view for whom the behavior is a problem. And it's probably not the autistic person. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And so you suggest that it might just be simpler or, or, or better said to just describe the behavior. Right. Yeah. yeah. And I think that, you know, there's plenty of historical and current evidence that a lot of times we intervene on behaviors that are not problematic and the intervention results in something that is much more problematic, you know, from yes. the point of view of the autistic person. And I mean, I, I'm definitely going to be sharing this with folks long before I, I publish this episode. Um, uh, but uh, we get into sort of the person first language, and this one seems to have the most, uh, 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 um, uh, what am I looking for? Um, what's the term for when the little numbers up in the corner? Uh, oh, oh, the <laughs> number of references, yeah. The references, sorry. <laughs> yeah, so autistic people have written a lot about, yeah. you know, their preference for identity first language. And I know one of the references we cite is Lydia Brown's work, and they have right. um, an amazing blog post about this that I give to my students all the time. And it's mm. for identity first language, um, you know, I think there are now, um, since like the past month, there's been like two or three um, empirical papers that are that are assessing preferences of the autism community, like what terms do you actually prefer? And in many cases, and not all, in many cases, they prefer identity first language. I don't think that necessarily um, cuts across all languages. You know, in English, I think many English speaking autistic people prefer identity first language. And so it's probably, you know, there's context and, and geography and all that and, and language wrapped up in that preference. Um, but what I think is really compelling about Lydia Brown's essay is the way that they break it down. Um, you know, here is why, um, you know, putting the person first assumes that that's not obvious when you're talking about an autistic person. That if I say autism and don't put the person first, it's unclear whether or not this individual actually has personhood. Um, yes. And we don't we don't do that with many of our other descriptors, and so it, it it's it's a it's a problem. You know, it conveys a particular ideology about autistic people when you insist on that that type of construction. That makes sense. That makes sense. And of course, the uh, the you know, I think the high functioning, low functioning. I think folks have you know really just really understand that one. I won't touch on that one right here um at risk i really like the at risk for autism i think this is a really um important one because again it just implies that risk implies of something bad you're never at yes. risk for something you're never at risk for getting a lot of presents for christmas right you know? exactly um, yeah. um or you're never at risk at winning for winning the lottery at risk just presumes deficit right or the outcome is bad yeah and I see a lot of that. So burden of suffering from autism, um, uh, comorbid. That that that's a. I've, I've always wondered about more because morbid sort of implies well death um, and disease, right? right? Um, horrible, yeah. Treatment was an interesting one. I, I, I've I've heard some some talk of treatment. In fact, the 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 the, uh, the company that I work for um, um, that I, I've only been there a couple of years. Um, uh, you know, we're frowning on 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 the use of treatment and intervention 
as terms um, and, and, and preferred to use sort of support or, or whatnot. Right. Support. Yeah. Yeah. I think treatment, because I think autistic people, there are things that they want support and not treatment for. Mm. I think treatment assumes that it's something that you're doing away with um, and not, not all aspects of um, being autistic are, are things that we want treatment for. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And then you get into sort of these ableist discourses, um, uh, autism as a puzzle, or, or even the puzzle piece, I know, has brought in, uh, you know, sort of a lot of frustration of late. Um, um, cure, recovery, I think, I think, you know, I, I hope most folks are starting to get that now that that we don't think autism is a disease. I mean, I, I think... I think the, the the concern, not the concern, that's not the right phrase. The argument that's going to come back to this, to, to, to this I, I agree with everything here. I'm, I'm, I'm totally on the same page as you. But I think one, one of the arguments that's going to come back, it, it goes back to sort of the, the idea of, of those support needs and the levels of support needs. And the, and the conversation that kind of keeps happening, I'm curious if you're doing any research to kind of look at this, um, is that well, those are only those folks that are either diagnosed as an adult, uh, you know, folks that never went through any of these 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 right. interventions as children, um, and folks that um, you know generally are able to sort of you know do things that neurotypical people do: have a job, um, you know, have a family, get married, have you know you know own their own home. Um, these are the folks that are complaining about this stuff. You're not speaking to, you know, the parents of these kids that have, you know, severe needs that are, you know, literally destroying homes and 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 harming family members and, and sort of that argument around sort of that severe autism sort of thing. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, yeah. I don't think that that argument makes a lot of sense because mm-hmm. um, it's not a binary like that. Like there seems to be this assumption that if you can communicate about things that dissatisfy you about autism research, then your support needs must be low. And that's, mm-hmm. uh, I don't, that's not true. In fact, there's mm-hmm. empirical evidence to show that this um, distinction between high and low support need or high and low functioning um, is not correlated with the things that you think it would be correlated with like IQ, mm-hmm. for example. So it's people, um, autistic people have, you know, can have low support needs in some areas and very high support needs in other areas. Being able to communicate is not a good proxy for how significant your support needs are. Mm -hmm. Um, In our um, article that we wrote, we included reference to parents who have high support needs autistic kids. We included reference to non-speaking autistic people. Um, so the, the idea that there's these binaries, I think mm-hmm. does not bear out in empirical research. Mm. And it seems to be saying that we're only interested in the autistic people who can't agree with, or who can't disagree with us. Mm. Um, and that's what we mean by, um, you know, low functioning, um, mm-hmm. which is an interesting kind of, you know, rhetorical argument. Yeah. Um, and I also don't like the, this whole article about um ableist language is it's with an interest in promoting rights for autistic people which cuts across levels of support needs Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. um so i don't understand why 
I don't understand the argument that says because I feel that I represent people who have more significant support needs, the only way I can describe them is by being ableist. Mm-hmm. I, I don't understand that logic. Like I think that, you know, if you don't use terms like low functioning, what you would do instead is describe their needs. And that seems to be much more helpful when you want to advocate for them mm-hmm. um, rather than using a catch-all term like low functioning that actually doesn't get at what their needs are. No. And creates a whole lot of assumptions about them. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Really cool. Uh, this First off, I, 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 I imagine, I'm curious, have you had any pushback yet, you know, for some of this stuff? Uh, definitely. Um, uh, for all of it, not, not yeah. anything significant. I think yeah. the support for it far outweighs the pushback we've got. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I'm sure there's pushback in ways that I don't see. You know, people yeah. definitely are, of course, free to disagree with any of it. Yeah. Um, but I, I feel like the people who are getting in touch with me and voicing their opinion of it are generally positive. Yeah. Um, I'm certain that my work is not perfect and would welcome critique of it. And there's probably things that I'm missing or I'm not thinking about in a um, holistic way. And yeah. I have, are, you know, areas that I don't have expertise on that I could learn more about and et cetera, yeah. et cetera. Um, but I, I have enjoyed doing it and I feel like I'm going to keep doing work like this. And awesome. in general, you know, people seem to support it. I hope so. I, and I hope you keep doing it. I think there's sort of two things, two responses folks can have to this research. One, they can go, yeah, we could do, we, we, we should do better. And, and, and let's, let's take advantage of this stuff. And, um, and, and, and that's what I liked about your work and Dr. Cassio's work is that you both have, you know, actual action items sort of in, in, in a lot of your work about sort of how we can do better. And I think that's really powerful. The other thing they can do is they can essentially try to do what you're doing and, um, and, and try to look for flaws in the way you're analyzing their research. Um, and I'm, I wouldn't be surprised if some of them are doing that right now. Well, they should. Then they yeah. would actually, in a weird way, they'd be supporting with what what I do because I right. think that you should scrutinize people yeah. appropriately. Yeah. Um, it doesn't mean I would agree with what they think those flaws are, yeah. but I'm certain that there's ways that I can uncover things better. So yeah, I was really uh, heartened to hear that you know you when you said earlier that at least one journal has sort of, you know, made some changes to their policy and, and maybe we're going to start to see more of that happening. Uh, uh, and, and I hope those that are listening out there that are editors, and, and I know I do have listeners that are, you know, contributing editors and associate editors of some of these prominent journals, um, you know, that they, you know, put some of this for, stuff forward and, uh, you know, to their to their editors-in-chief and, and, and start having some of these conversations. I'm just so impressed with this work. I'm so I'm so glad you're doing this. Um, and uh, and you're not doing it alone. You've got a lot of uh, great colleagues and, and a lot of teams. You've got some other research, which we're not going to touch on today that I, I like that you're looking at sort of, uh, which I think is really important. Uh, uh, there's one study here about perspectives of youth. Um, with autism uh, on 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 some of the interventions themselves. So how, how do they feel about those interventions? And I think that's really good yes. looking at sort of the subject sort of um, perspectives. And I can point folks to kind of some of that research to kind of get, because I think that's something we also don't do a, a really good job of, um, you know, and, and, and some, and, you know, just, just sort of 
from the outside looking in at looking at some of these students in these classes and going, you know, just sort of how stigmatizing and awkward they must feel sort of being in some of these situations, um, you know, while their peers are, you know, busy chilling in the hallway playing video games, um, you know, um, they're, they're learning how to say hi, how are you and that sort of thing. And, and, uh, and, and, and so I really like how you're looking at those perspectives. And again, you're looking at it as someone who's not involved in any of that research. Um, you know, that outside looking in sort of perspective, I think is so powerful. And I hope folks take a look at some of that work as well. Yes, thank you. And that's a perfect um, opportunity for me to thank my awesome research assistants. I have doctoral and undergraduate students who work with me. Um, Shannon Crowley, Soyun Kim, um, Josie Kuda, Rachel McKinnon, Sarah Mahudin, and uh, Vicki Yu all worked with me on, on these projects and were absolutely integral to, um, to what we studied. That's awesome. So maybe just before we before we sign off here, you could tell us about some of the some of the projects you're working on now. Oh sure, yeah. Uh, one project again led by Michael Sandbank is an update to Project Aim. Mm. Um, we actually are really close to finishing, but we finished the search for the original Project Aim in 2017. Mm. We just updated it to cover the um, we, the search ended for the update in 2021. So it's four additional years of research mm. and the number of studies doubled. Wow. So in four years, we published as much group design intervention research as the previous 50. So we're going to have an update on that. Um, I also, with, uh, many of the students that I just mentioned, we, um, submitted a study on social validity measures. Mm. So we examined how researchers measured social validity, um, as you can imagine, we have critiques of that uh, practice. And awesome. interestingly, the critiques don't come from me. They come from behavioral researchers in the 90s who critiqued social validity measures. And we're just following up and seeing if people listen to their critiques. Yes. Um, so that will be coming out soon. Um, and I'm doing um, more developmental research, looking at how um, caregivers engage with their um, autistic children and how that impacts their development. Really cool. Really good stuff. Really good stuff. Kristen, I'm so glad you came on the podcast. I know a lot of people will be glad to hear that this work is being done and, and will likely follow up and hopefully connect with you. Um, I'd love to have you back sometime just to kind of see where things are at in a few years. Yeah, that would be great. Thank you That's so much awesome. for having me. Oh, great. All right.